and welcome to the rsf.gov podcast. In this episode, we'll be uh, looking at the recently published book Diary of an Activist by Orly Egan and Megan Ruddy O'Leary. Uh, Diary of an Activist is an illustrated memoir of activism in the uh, 1980s and 1990s, um, written by Orla and drawing on her experiences in anti-nuclear, CND, feminist and uh, queer activism, and illustrated by Megan. Orla may be familiar to listeners from the Cork LGBT Archive project of which he's the founder and um, we spoke to her about that project in episode eight if you want to uh, find out more about that uh, megan is an artist and illustrator uh, originally from cork and a recent graduate of uh, illustration and visual culture from the national college of art and design you can find out uh, more about the book and order it at diaryofanactivist.com and we've also included a few of the illustrations uh, that are mentioned in the discussion in the podcast notes so uh, have a look at those as well um before we come to the interview with Orla and Megan, uh, Kieran, you wanted to draw attention to another episode that we'll be having in January. Yeah, we have a guest next month in January, uh, Michael Flavin, who lectures at King's College London. He's written a novel published in September, I think. Uh, it's entitled One Small Step, and it was uh, published by Volpine Press. It's available both in printed and ebook format. Uh, now, the interesting aspect of this is it's a book about a young boy from an Irish family in Birmingham during the 1970s and uh, looks particularly around the time of the Birmingham pub bombings and it charts the impact of those on the Irish community in Birmingham at the time. Uh, now it's a fascinating book uh, and I've got to admit I've got a particular interest in this because uh, my mother is English from Birmingham herself and I have family there and have been a visitor to and from there on and off across that period and long after. Uh, there's also a link to the archive because Michael used various materials in the archive to get a sense of these events in that time. And he's also written a paper uh, entitled Four Topologies of Leadership Applied to the Survey of the Provisional IRA in Sinn Féin and the Troubles, which has been published in the journal Terrorism and Political Violence. So we're very much looking forward to talking to him about that and his novel. So that comes up next month. Excellent. So, um, yeah, look out for that. Um subscribe to the podcast feed and all that sort of thing as ever we appreciate everyone who's been listening so far and any suggestions are always welcome um, and also any materials you might think are relevant to the Irish Left Archive uh, always delighted to hear from people so you can find the Left Archive at leftarchive.ie um, and you can email us on uh, contact at leftarchive.ie so thanks to uh Orla and to Megan for joining us uh, to discuss the Diary of an Activist publication and thank you for listening. Thank you Orla and Megan for joining us. So maybe we can start with you Orla, uh, just a general background I suppose, what, what led to the starting the project uh, of writing this book? Um, I suppose the idea of this book has been with me for some time um, and I always loved the idea of an Irish social activism graphic memoir. Um, and, in, you know, I love the work of Alison Bechdel and how she uses kind of, you know, somewhat personal stories to illustrate a lot around kind of the politics and political context of, of American politics and of kind of lesbian and queer politics as they evolve. So I've always like, loved that kind of work. And I love the idea of being able to show how activism was done, how it happened, um, how you did things like make a newspaper or make uh, badges or newsletters, how we communicated 
in a time before social media or easy access to phones or computers. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a major problem with all of this, uh, which is that I can't draw. <laughs> and so um, I've had this idea for a good long time, but I didn't know if I could ever bring this to fruition. And then I got really lucky and met Megan. Um, and um, I did a uh, talk at the Women's Fun Weekend in Cork um, in 2019, um, talking about the history of the LGBT community in Cork. And I had my exhibition up around it and Megan was there. Um, and I think it had an impact <laughs> of some sort. Um, and then uh, following on from that, Megan was doing some college work and asked for audio interviews um, from some people. So I gave Megan one about loafers. And Megan did these incredible um, animated interviews where she kind of played the audio while illustrating and and, and uh, animating the, the interviews. And then we added those to the archive. Um, you know, so those are the kind of the beginnings of, of our kind of connection and collaboration. And... Um, and then I asked Megan if she'd be interested in possibly uh, collaborating on a on a project and we met for coffee. And, you know, I, I don't tend to do nervous very often, but I was quite nervous and tentative kind of, you know, going to meet Megan for coffee because it kind of felt like, you know, it was a, a proposition, not a romantic or, or whatever <laughs> proposition, but it was, you know, proposing working on something that was quite intense and intimate in lots of ways um but i think from the beginning we we bonded over a love of alice and bechdel's work and i think megan really got what it was that i was trying to do um and but i think that that we had no idea at that time the amount of work that would be involved in it i think megan would have run a mile um <laughs> if he had known at the time how much work was involved and and then there was a whole process of kind of working out kind of how how to work together and how to collaborate so i can say a bit more in, in, about that in a minute but i don't know if megan you want to say anything about that early kind of connection and yeah i mean i i didn't know um what you were going to ask when you were saying you saying you had an idea for a project and I was thrilled because I was just like this is the dream project like this is what like I have always wanted to do um and yeah we both really loved Alison Bechdel and I could really see what you wanted to do like I could really imagine it and I really really wanted to do it and I was just very like flattered that you thought I was good enough to do it and like very excited to work on it um but yeah it was just it was very um what's the word uh serendipitous I guess that I have like I was in Cork that summer I was I, my friend Roisin brought me to uh the Women's Fun Weekend and I was like wow this is the most interesting history talk I've ever been to and I really like history and I was like this is fantastic and I didn't know 90% of it which is like not embarrassing but it's 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 shocking given I am from Cork and I just really really didn't know about any of it and so I yeah I'm really glad I I saw you at that and I knew about the archives and I knew about the book and then I felt like I could uh, ask you to do the interviews and then that's how that all came about and stuff. It was just, yeah, it was really, really lucky. I think I just feel very lucky that it happened. Yeah, and I, I think for me, it's kind of very much, it's around a collaboration. It wasn't about a commission, that it was very much something that we co-created, you know, so uh, part of the whole thing was trying to work out how we did that together, you know, so... Mm-hmm. 
um, in you know, while we met for coffee that first time, most of the work was done uh, on Zoom or WhatsApp messages because it was you know, most of the work was done during COVID lockdowns. Um, and, you know, it started with me having my little book with kind of, you know, stick figure kind of illustrations, but we kind of gradually kind of worked uh, kind of way of sharing information. So I would share not with just words and my kind of scribbles, but also images from the archive or any photographs that I had or, you know, images at the time, if we're talking about Gestetner machines, trying mm. to find an image of what that looked like, because mm. a lot of the things that I was talking about and describing were not things that, that Megan was familiar with. Um, mm. But we also kind of really wanted to make it understandable and readable to a younger generation who hadn't lived through it too. So I think that intergenerational kind of collaboration and working kind of really helped with that. Did you find you you were, uh, I mean, were you approaching it with a fairly fixed idea of, say, from the narrative side, where you intending to go? Or does the did that sort of take its form, I suppose, during the process as well? Um, I think I had... Um, a, a fair idea of what I was trying to do, um, but the kind of exact kind of journey of how it went kind of evolved. So I, I wanted to tell a story around social activism and political activism in Cork from the 1970s onwards. And I wanted to use, or I thought it was useful to use my own kind of story of involvement with activism as a hook to tell that story. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, obviously I knew that narrative having lived yeah. through it. Um, <laughs> but it was also it. trying to um, to think about what was kind of relevant there, you know, and it wasn't about, you know, my personal story so much as a story around vegetarianism and mm. anti-nuclear protests and Carnesau Point and C&D and the Key Co-op and loafers and, you know, feminism and lesbian parties and kind of, you know, the archives, all those kind of things, you know, um, but also trying to make connections between things that happened kind of in the 80s and now. So, you know, the whole um, anti-amendment repeal the eighth kind of campaign. And in the book, there is a thread that kind of tries to link you know, that activism trying to oppose that amendment coming in in 1983 and linking up to the moment of repeal um, in whatever year that was, um, you know. And, and so it's kind of trying to kind of show how it was different, but also the connections between activism over the years. And, th- and then I suppose that we had to work that together as well, like in terms of how the narrative worked with the imagery and what we were trying t- to do, you know, Um and and Megan kind of you know suggested cuts at various stages. Right. Yeah, yeah. But that was nice because you were very like it was. It felt very collaborative, and that I felt like I could tell you what I thought because we started with fifty pages, I think, of a sort of script that you had, mm. and it ended up being one hundred and twenty or one hundred and fifty pages of just text, right. which, if you translate to imagery, would have been. 200 300 pages yeah. and the book is actually 150 pages so yeah. but I think the fact that I was a bit clueless as to what actually went on in that whole scene in the 80s and 90s might have been useful and that I could be like okay this bit's relevant because I don't know and if this is in part educational then mm-hmm. we should keep this and we can cut this because I think the average impression of the 80s in Ireland already has this aspect of it which mm-hmm. was very trusting we're allowed to let me just be like yeah we should cut this section of your life out of <laughs> 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 it's 
not relevant to the activism. So just, you were very open wow. to that kind of thing happening. Which was, it, it was it was challenging, you know. It, yeah. it was challenging, you know, because like I was saying, I needed to kind of I was suggesting that we caught some stories that were obviously very important and personal to me. Mm. And then it's like kind of looking back and then going, damn, she's right, you know, at work to to cut that. And then also it was trying to actually make the work happen, you know, because we didn't want to do all this work and not be able to complete it. So, you know, there was a a certain amount of time that was available because Megan was finishing college at the same time, you know, and and very, very intense later in terms of, of the work. Did you incorporate, I should ask Megan, did you incorporate the the work on the book into your college work yes. yeah, yeah I, I luckily was able to that's the kind of why I was able to do it actually was because I did um I was going to do an Erasmus but then because uh, of uh COVID and uh, you couldn't really do them or you kind of could but it was kind of dangerous uh hmm. so I did this thing called Studio Plus in NCAD which is where they kind of set you up with internships and they give you projects and stuff but it's very open and it's like a pass fail it's kind of like a transition year sort of thing um so I just asked my tutor and I was like hey I've got this really cool book I want to work on for a semester if I can and he was like yeah no problem that's fine just send me some pages when you're done and I was oh, like oh great. my god so that was great that was that was really wonderful that was a great way of getting it done and then the summer after that I was able to work on it a lot as well which was really cool. but yeah but 150 pages I mean the amount of imagery and the amount of text it's fabulous I mean there's so much in there in the end did you come to an accommodation in terms of the balance between text and imagery or was that something that again evolved naturally out of your collaboration or or, or was it even an issue perhaps it wasn't even an issue yeah, I think it evolved fairly naturally you know in so. that, like the the text would inform the kind of story that we were trying to tell on a particular page and hmm. um, then we'd figure out kind of what what images might work with that and um, hmm. And then uh, we we got to a point where what we would do is Megan would do um, a sketch of the page and then we'd have a look at that to see if that was reflective of of what, you know, what was accurate for for that time and then kind of work on that. Um, And then sometimes what we did is we, uh, Megan suggested adding some kind of speech text in to to kind Mm. of some of the pages and that. And I think that worked, but... I don't know, my sense is that it kind of, it, it, there wasn't much conflict really between text and image. Yeah. I'd always conceived it as visually as well. You know, I wasn't writing something that was text heavy. Yeah. It was something that was very much meant to be illustrated. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the text was descriptive actually, which was very helpful. Like there was a lot of text in the original script that was you telling me what things looked like and who was there and like what they were wearing and like what was going on. And you sent me so much um, reference, which was fantastic because I I need that to to draw anything. So yeah, you, the archive was amazing, but also Orla just had personal photos and things that uh, you had saved and everything, which was really really helpful. So I could just literally have an image of the other place or something that I could use instead of yeah, it was really good. Like a lot of research, but um, it was very shared, which was nice. It's interesting because looking at the images themselves, there's a lot of um, there's an incredible amount of detail in them. And yet they're not overloaded um, in terms of the use of lines. Uh, It's a really interesting balance because you've got these large areas of flat color, which I think are incredibly effective. And yet they're also incredibly resonant at the time. I mean, I was looking at the ones of, uh, I'm not sure is that Greenham Common. I think it is with the people around the the fence. And, you know, it, it just brings it all back. It's, it's, 
that's it. Yeah, it's it's fabulous. And it brings it all back. And yet it's incredibly simple and defined, but it's not simplistic, if that if that makes sense. There's a low lot of um, information contained within the and, and it's what you, you're both saying. I mean, it sounds to me as if the the fact the archive was there as a springboard and then the personal memories and then the personal memories that feed into the archive and all personal memories. And then out of this comes this thing that is totally linked and yet has a, a very clear identity of its own and yet comes back and reflects on the period of time. Uh, well, particularly that period of time. I mean, it's amazing to see the key go up and, you know, and the, the, it, I think it works very strongly as a visual. Yeah. Work. Yeah, no, I mean, I think at the at the Dublin Agency, Kamikaze was talking about kind of looking through the book and recognizing that these were, you know, real replicas of posters and and you know uh, badges and things from the time. So yeah, that somebody who kind of lived through those recognized those, but I think there was also a space for you know, creative interpretation and stuff, you know, so I think that was the balance that we had, you know, where we'd strive for that it was accurate. Mm. But then, um, you know, for me, it was important to give Megan the space to be able to put her own mark on it as well, you know, and, you know, that I don't know if you've seen the, the ticking clock kind of uh, page, but that that's page that I think is, is very Megan. It's kind of, you know, it it's, it's, your interpretation of something which wasn't kind of fed by me, you know. Um, so I think having that space for it to be guided by, you know, the the images of the time and and my recollection of the time, but having the space for Megan to be able to put your creative mark on it, um, I think was really important. And also, I think, led to the creation of what I see as like multiple works of art. I think it's incredibly beautiful. Um, I can say that because I'm not responsible. (laughs) (laughs) I'm blushing. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, But I think it's it was really it's a very um, useful period to be drawing because it's so like distinct in my brain. I don't know. Maybe it's more distinct in my brain because I wasn't there. Like it's so coded in the culture in a certain way, and it's really like cohesive with the posters from the time and the photography from the time and like films made about the 80s and 90s now all kind of use the same like I don't know color palettes and like the same sort of it's like it's quite an easy one to I don't know it was a nice one to just like throw yourself into because there's so much to watch and there's so much to listen to that will get you into the headspace of it even if you're not looking at like Cork specifically or Ireland specifically like I don't know I was I was watching like It's a Sin and stuff at the time like I was just like and I was listening to a lot of like Pet Shop Boys I was just really it's a really easy one to like get into uh visually and like I don't know artistically and stuff so but the archive was obviously the best thing but yeah I don't know I just it, it was a nice it was a really nice thing to draw and then Alison Bechdel as well it's like yeah a really nice one to draw inspiration from yeah I think that was really important kind of connection between this because it meant that even though it was intergenerational that we both understood mm-hmm. what it was that we were trying to create do you know that it wasn't just a personal story that it was very much about the kind of political context of that you know and and telling that story and it sounds like you've got a shared visual language to begin with, in a sense, or a shared visual aesthetic and sensibility. So once you have that, I mean, then it becomes a case of then negotiating how it it moves on into into final printed format. Did you find that um, that you could relate, Megan, to the content or was it, does it overlap with your own experience in any way? It, like, I think I was, th- I was thinking about it um, 
it like the the story does is familiar and the the feeling of it is familiar but the like mise-en-scene is obviously very different like the setting is very different mm. but um yeah I, it's really interesting like I, I I was in no way like on the level of Orla when I was a teenager like I just was not that cool <laughs> <laughs> and I was not that I was I'm no, like I'm no excuse I just was not that radical or sexual um but I I was like uh really annoying in religion class and I know that's not quite the same as like organizing a like a festival in Fitzgerald's Park but I just like me and my friends in school I I just when you were when I was drawing your like teenage D&D gang I really felt like a, a bit of a connection there with my own like friends in school and everything like just being generally annoying about stuff and asking questions and like annoying our our Catholic religion teacher a lot, I think. Um, which is it's definitely like they're totally different scales but just that it was a familiar sort of feeling was nice but um yeah I don't know and then there's like I guess it was just really nice to I think it, there's a lot of like I think there's a lot of queer people my age who feel very connected to that history and want to know about it and really understand that everything we have is because of that and there's also like a, almost like that's our history thing going on in a sort of almost like family history or ancestral history way that it's it's very emotional like when I was reading yeah. when I was working on it I got very emotional like a lot reading about it and stuff because I really didn't know about a lot of it and it was a lot of it was really happy and it was very shocking because most mm-hmm. of what you hear about the 80s in Ireland to do with queer people and to do with women and to do with like anything of that nature is just really overwhelmingly sad and yeah really grim and I was just yeah it was it was shockingly emotional to to learn about it was really really nice it was just yeah like the joyous moments as well like clearly that comes through very strongly in the imagery as well like that I mean it's quite well I don't know it's hopeful or optimistic the right word because it's about struggles that are you know challenges and struggles that occur and then not everything's been won, obviously, but it's moved so far from there. And yet the essential humanity of people just going out and having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, yeah. And I think the, the issues in the 1980s were very stark. Mm. So, I mean, very, very stark in terms of of feminism, in terms of, you know, um, anti-abortion stuff you couldn't get access to contraception the divorce referendum failed as well homosexuality was illegal rape and marriage was still legal you know you had like 15 year olds dying giving birth in a in a um grotto grotto, thank you grotto in in ireland you had the kerry babies like tribunal where a woman's sexuality is on trial you had people being Eileen Flint fired from her job for getting pregnant and not being married. So, you know, that was the kind of context of it. Mm. But my experience of it was of being immersed in the kind of radical activism of, you know, those who were trying to change the world, you know, Mm. change the reality that we lived in. And that was really exciting and really vibrant and really enriching. And, you know, I feel really lucky to have been a kind of teenager hanging out in the key co-op, you know, and being involved in all these kind of, you know, radical ways of viewing the world that were very, very different to the norm at the time. And that that were really, really trying to change the lived reality of so many people in Ireland and so much of that has changed I mean obviously we still need to change the world and and there's been like you know some backtracking recently but you know for me it was like it was actually a very positive time 
Um, and, and talking to younger people uh, these days, you know, I, I do kind of walking tours for the LGBT archive and um, as well as it being history that, that people don't know about enough, um, it's also that people are saying that they don't have access to that same entry route into activism as we had and not access to the same kinds of spaces like the key co-op or loafers or even like the, the cafe that was in the other place. I said there aren't the same kind of spaces and opportunities available for younger activists to get involved in the way that I was. And, you know, I think what was really important in the 80s as well in Cork was that you might come into that space in a particular thing through, say, C&D or anti-nuclear stuff, but you're exposed to a whole other range of yeah. radical activism and ideas. Yeah. And you become involved in are aware of so much, do you yeah. know? And vice versa. Yeah. That was the beauty of it. It was like, because it wasn't, it was many struggles in one and one struggle in many. Yeah. No, and you supported each other. So you yeah. Know, somebody's organizing an anti-apartheid kind of demo, you yeah. all go to that or, you yeah. know, whatever it is that there was that mutual kind of support and cross-pollination. And, and you think in a sense that is, that's, well, I mean, would you say that's specifically a Cork thing or you feel that, I mean, this is really interesting because if you're saying like the 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 the, the spaces whereby uh, young queer people, young radical people, people who want to be part of that broader milieu, they're not getting the same sort of, um, there's just not the same traction there for them. Is that it? Like, I think not. I'm, I'm really hoping somebody proves me wrong on this because yeah. I don't want to be right about this. But the feedback that I'm getting from people that I engage with is that there aren't the same spaces. Um, wow. and the same kind of avenues into activism as they were. And I keep hoping somebody's going to prove me wrong on this because I don't want to be right about it. I think Izzy said something really interesting at the, the launch as well, that it's so overlapping with the housing crisis because it's those literal, like it's literal physical spaces that mm-hmm. aren't there because people want to organise, but they just actually can't because they they have they have no clubhouse, like they have nowhere to gather. They have no like, yeah, yeah. I do, yeah, I think that I I think that's true as well. I'm not as, I, I yeah I will I'm not as involved as you are, so I I don't have my finger on the pulse in the same way. But I, from what I can tell, it feels true. Yeah, I I think Megan's right. Like at the the launch in Dublin, which was in Colony Books, there was mm. that kind of discussion around the spaces. So like in the in the eighties and even into the nineties, you could find a you know, semi-derelict property that you mm. could afford to rent and you'd have to do a lot of work to renovate it, but you could create those community spaces or you could afford to rent kind of like, you know, dilapidated, but like yeah. little spaces. Whereas at the moment, I'm desperately seeking space for the Cork LGBT Archive as a base. We have no space and mm. it's really difficult to find. So I think Megan's right about that, you know, that the... The whole kind of housing situation and the the kind of uh, cost of any kind of property is is prohibitive to create in those spaces. And and, and if it's marginalised outside, say, and it doesn't have to be a city centre, but if it's not close enough to a city centre or accessible, people don't go to things. People yeah. aren't going to access. Yeah. Mm. I mean, wow. there's an interesting parallel with the way, uh, you know, as an illustrator, Megan, I don't know if it's an experience you have, but the um, artist spaces are starting to yeah, disappear. I mean, I know in Belfast, all the studios that were in town, they've realised maybe some money could be made now and they're doing the places up and they end up further outside the city. And um, You know, which I think is the same process. And, and in fact, a lot of those spaces tend to overlap in terms of activist spaces and artist spaces. And, you know, 
Yeah, you have the same in Cork, you know, you had like Camden Palace was an amazing kind of community art centre and it was kicked out of the premises, you know, which is going to be another hotel and Sampa Studios got moved out of the space they were using, you know, so I think you're right mm-hmm. that that it's not just in terms of activist spaces, it's a, it's about what we're prioritising in this world at the moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And my sense is that those actual spaces made a big difference, you know, that the access to a space like the key co-op or mm. Loafers Bar, which was more than a bar, you know, it felt like mm. a kind of community space. Um, and then in the, in the 90s, the other place, Community Centre, that those spaces in and of themselves are really important. Mm. And to have a space where you could gather and that, you know, um, activism that wasn't kind of pre-planned could emerge, you know, yeah. from conversations and interactions yeah. that were were happening there. You know, the the whole thing about the 1992 um, LGBT Float the Patrick's Day Parade, you know, that emerged from a conversation in the back room of loafers, you know, with somebody who'd come back from New York and was bringing back the stories about what was happening with the Irish Lesbian Gay Organisation being banned from marching there. Mm-hmm. And we went, Sure, wouldn't it show them if we marched in Cork? And then that turned into, you know, the first ever LGBT float anywhere in the world in the Patrick's Day Parade. Do you know? So it's just, you know, those opportunities for for discussions and actions, do you know? And even um you were sorry, I'm just I don't know, I'm just thinking of this now, but um there's an early page in the book where you're talking about the first C and D meeting you went to was in somebody's bedsit. And like young people now live in their parents homes like they mm. they don't have their own beds they don't have their own flats for those kind of even really basic organizing like yeah. how are you gonna I don't know yeah I just it's I think it's yeah I think it's very relevant that it's it's much harder to to do stuff like that now because you don't have your own space yeah. but in in terms of, you know, of making those connections you know um about space and that I did again walking to her with architecture students in Cork recently um, so bringing them around the various places and one of the spaces was where the other place LGBT Community Centre had been in the 1990s and, yeah. and it's now yet another derelict property. And then following on from that, the architecture students were doing this 24 hour design project where they were reimagining derelict spaces in Cork and what they could be. And one of the students who had come on the walking tour reimagined the other place as this incredible space and space for homeless LGBT young people and yeah. it wasn't just a um, housing space but it was also about a cafe it was about you know kind of um rooftop garden it was about you know just creating this really beautiful usable space yeah. for, for people you know so I think for me that really drew the connections between all of those threads that we're talking about um, it would be amazing to see that actually, you know, become a reality. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, really what you're saying is, and again, coming back to the intergenerational collaboration side of it, what you're actually expressing about here in this in this work is really pointing up these issues that are, it all, of course, it changes. But this is a massive issue, which in a sense, again, is under reflected in terms of the implications it has and the ramifications. People say the housing crisis, and that's a very real high crisis. But then, as you say, like it has a societal impact for all these other areas. And and I guess maybe that's another aspect of the value of this work, that it brings out that sort of thing to the fore. And, you know, it's engendering the discussions like this. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, and I suppose for me, I really hope that 
that the book speaks to um, people of different generations. You know that that it's it speaks to people who live through the same period of activism that I lived through. You know, so people who are looking at it and recognizing, you know, campaigns or, or you know activism that they've been involved in or places and spaces that they've been. But for me, it's also been really important, and I'm really hoping that it resonates with kind of younger activists of today. Um, and, you know, being able to see the kind of the threads of connection between how social change activism has happened over the decades and the connections between what people are trying to do now and, and what's been happening before. But also to kind of just understand the, the, the differences in terms of how we do that activism. So, you know, talking about things like the badge making machines and the cassette yeah. machines and, you know, the whole weekend long kind of production for a disarm newspaper, you know, yeah. and, you know, hanging the kind of like the newspaper pages on a, on a clothesline across the, the, the room. And, you know, it's much faster now. You sit down, like, you know, at a computer and you, like, churn out the newsletter in, like, however many hours. But it's much less connected. Like, I mean, those yeah. ends were incredible events in and of themselves, do you know? So, you know, there's things gained and lost. There's um, camaraderie in the donkey work, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I remember those weekends as being really hard work, but incredibly good fun. Great fun. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. just it's funny you say that about badges because badges are coming back in like we were only discussing that last week uh with alan kinsley of the irish election literature and he has a, a huge collection of badges political badges and such like mm. but the image um of order there with the badges and they're on the outside on the satchel there and i'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about like why that's actually happening why are they coming back into i wouldn't use the word fashion but into use again um, i guess yeah, I mean, these are all just takes, but I, I, I guess the um, uh, digital imagery is very, um, what's the word? Like, it doesn't hold a, a huge amount of value among mm-hmm. my generation. I think like you can kind of, do you know those um, those Facebook filters? So there's like Instagram filters you can yeah. put over your face to be like, I stand with whatever. Those are fine, but I think everyone of my generation kind of sees them as. Um, not necessarily showy offy, but like just you know they're they're very they're so easy to implement and they they feel like you're risking a lot less and I I don't know I feel like with badges you feel like okay like online if I'm in my circle of people who like me and I'm saying like yeah gay rights or whatever like mm-hmm. that's not really risking a lot but if I'm wearing my like for example marriage referendum badge in my all girls Catholic school or in my yeah. granny's house or wherever it is yeah. or like you know just. <laughs> like wherever you happen to be it, it's like you're risking a lot more and it's also feels more tangibly empowering for you I think because you're like I'm actually this is more in my real life I guess I don't know yeah and, and do you think maybe marriage equality and uh, choice do you think that also maybe pushed them into the public space in a way they hadn't been around I, I mean I don't know because it seems to be all over so. but yeah yeah I, th- I think so I think that that made people that made the the whole thing more visually clear because I think online you can't tell who's on what side and what what the general it's hard to yeah. poll online because you're so in your own circle or whatever but it made yeah. it like especially during choice it made it very visually clear mm. who thought what when and what was going on I don't know that's just the take but I, I feel like that's that's part of it I don't know yeah no I think that's really interesting that whole thing of it's a very public statement what mm. badges you're wearing you know as opposed to kind of what you're doing online you know yeah it's 
So we live in Federico and back to using Gestetner machines. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think so. I I was wondering, you were saying earlier about like getting photographs. I think you said you had to get a photo of a Gestetner just to use as a source reference for the illustration. Was that difficult or is it just go on Google and there it is and away you go? Or Yeah, I think I Googled that too. Gestetners are very popular as a sort of, and it's funny how they've got this currency on the left and 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 on on, on campaigning and protesting as well because they were cheap, I guess they must have been reasonably cheap. But if you mention Gestetner machine, anyone of our generation, everybody automatically does yes. kind of hand turning <laughs> thing. Like we all remember this, and, like, this like physical memory of turning it. You know, didn't have a vinegary smell. There must have been some chemical in the process. Yeah, yeah. Just in terms of the communication as well, I suppose the other bit for me was around kind of, you know, I, th- I think some younger people think that like, you know, everybody's always had a mobile phone. Yeah. You know, And I suppose I was trying to kind of illustrate the fact that not only did we not have mobile phones, that very often people didn't have landlines. You yeah. know, there's a whole, um, there's a story in the book around literally being sent over a mountain on a pony to make a phone call in a bar like that. Like, you know, it was a half a day's journey to get to and a half a day back, you know, to kind of just try and get some sense of of communication and transport even at that point, yeah. you know. Um so it is it is just trying to show a, a different world, um, but also a world in which so many things happened, do you know? Yeah. On the illustration, did you both have, I mean, how did that work in terms of, was there a process where, Megan, you brought samples and said, look, these are possible routes, or did you have, or 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 had you got a fairly clear idea to begin with which route to go? I mean, uh, or was, again, was there a give and take there, or how did that work? I, th- I think it was a process that evolved, do you know, so, mm. so how we did it in the beginning and how we did it in the end were different, you know, so by the end, it would be that I would uh, give Megan a, a particular piece of text mm. that I would probably have some, you know, stick people kind of um, drawing um, of what I imagined would be on it. But then I would also feed uh, posters or photographs or images or descriptions. So, you know, Megan was talking about how the text that I gave you was very long, but within that there was descriptive stuff. So even we we worked a code with one another about what was text to be included and what was descriptive text. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Megan would do a um, a pencil drawing. Pencil drawing is probably not the right way. No, it's perfect. Like a sketch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A sketch and then we would meet on Zoom and, and talk about that and see if anything needed to be changed or not and then work from there. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, definitely. I think that's exactly, yeah. And even just, yeah, the development of the style was, I think, interesting as well. I had to think about it recently to like remind myself how that happened. But because I think initially I thought you wanted something more traditional, like a, like because we've been talking about Alison Bechdel, I had like comic panels in my mind. Um, and I remember at one point I was kind of working on things that I, I wasn't really pleased with and you were kind of like I don't really know about this um, and then you were like do, do they have to have the boxes and I was like oh yeah. I thought you wanted them <laughs> sorry okay now that we don't have to do that this is all much easier and I think it was fine after that I think once we got that sorted out it was it was pretty easy but yeah and then the the sketch review and then ink and color was pretty much the, the yeah and I think you know that you know there was um 
a huge relationship of kind of respect and trust um, between us. You know, that it, mm. for me, it was kind of one of the uh, best and easiest collaborations I've ever had, you know, and there weren't any fragile egos involved. Yeah. You know? So Megan could say to me, I think we need to cut that. And it would be, I would look at it and see, and usually she was right. Or I could say, that's not really working, or I think we need to change that or whatever. And and that was a case. So, you know, I think that, that that was really useful. We both knew what we were bringing to the table, but it was also something that we were creating together. So there was that discussion and that that collaboration about it, you know, and how, how it would be. So So evolving to the process where we would... Uh, do the the sketch drawings first of all and then talk about it was better than you know having made, made the mistake of Megan having done all the work of coloring it all in and then having to change it like yeah so it was the process of how to do it evolved as as we did the work you know mm. so there was there was a learning process in the beginning you know from a collaboration point of view because obviously it works in both directions and as as somebody with no skill in that area I suppose I think of it maybe too unidirectionally from text to illustration but did you find then Orla that it's that as as you went through that process it affected how you write and how you thought about the text you were producing as well um yeah I think I had to kind of think about the text in in relation to how how that was going to be with the images um and as I said we also kind of evolved to kind of adding in some kind of text bubbles where they Mm. kind of you know worked to try and illustrate you know, what was going on a little bit better. But, you know, I had never thought of this as being a text-only um, publication. You know, that's never how it was envisaged. It was always needed to be visual, which is why I didn't think it would ever happen. Because right. <laughs> it needed something that I didn't have, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's that's why, you know... I, I, you really just feel like that I'm so lucky to be able to collaborate with Megan on this, you know, and, and it's so beautiful. It's like yeah. it's really, really beautiful. Um, and I, and I think that, that again, that will appeal to people in a different way who are interested in it from a kind of visual or art, you know, perspective or from the perspective of illustration, you know, mm. and, and I think Megan had interesting stuff as well about how you came up with the color palette in 1970s. Fashion magazines, is that right? Oh yeah, I was like, yeah, I, I the colors were so wrong for a while. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> they were they were terrible for ages. There was just something really off about them. I don't know. Um, and then I was on Pinterest, <laughs> as I often am. Um, I think it was actually a fashion editorial of ABBA. Uh, I based <laughs> the color palette from Ooh. from nineteen seventy eight. <laughs> And that was good then, but yeah, no, I I used a lot of those kind of like really saturated like Kodachrome sort of things, but also just stuff from the archive. Like a lot of the photography in the archive really had those colors and like the sort of faded other place, and also the women's place. Like they have those kind of like mm. I don't even know I should know the word for that kind of color palette, but maybe dual tone. Or, um, but yeah, that kind of nice Kodachrome filmy sort of thing. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it was it was it was nice when that came to it. Just on the front cover, actually. That's obviously a hand paint. You know, that was a hand painted font, wasn't it? Just yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's just it's just it's so striking. Was there any thinking that went into that? Like when you came to the cover, was there a sort of thing of like, okay, this is the approach, or between both of you? 
Well, the, the, the original kind of version of the cover that we had, mm. the first sample that we, we printed just wasn't working, you know. So then, uh, you know, my partner suggested red because yep. it is, it is right. cork and we needed it to kind of pop a bit more. <laughs> um, and we wanted to add in some images. And actually, this image on the back mm. is actually represents when Megan and I met for coffee to discuss the, the book. Um, Brilliant. This is an illustration that that Megan did on that. But um, Megan, do you want to talk about the the text on that? I remember because this was the cover. I don't know why, but we didn't do a. It wasn't in the original run of stuff, so it was like a year after the book had Mm. been drawn, Mm. around when we knew it was going to get published, and we were like, "Oh, we need a cover now." Oh no! And I think the initial ones were crazy like there was too much I, I think I was I don't know I was throwing spaghetti at the wall and there was too much imagery and then when you were like something simpler would be better like maybe just the title page and then I was like oh, we were like that's already working um and I think the hand lettering I yeah. just yeah I think just because the diary aspect of it the, the writing in the in the book is kind of like a hand lettering font that I made so I was like it might kind of tie in with that and the red was good and you really liked the image of um the teenage activist and I think that's really like um representative as well so I thought that was good and then yeah I was actually very quickly done on um the floor of my bedroom the the <laughs> lettering don't say that, <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> I mean it took hours and hours, hours. <laughs> so the, secrets of <laughs> the rest of it took a really long time but <laughs> You might have had to crank because you had to draw for hours on the cover, you know. Well, we had gone like yeah, from like a really simple version of the cover to a really like as you said, too much thrown on yeah. it, and then, yeah, and then I was like, so we needed something in, be- in between. But yeah, but the, it literally had gone for its first kind of sample print before we had a, a proper cover designed. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I think you know what Megan kind of just said there as well. Like, I mean, all the font inside is like um, a. a custom designed font um, that that Megan had created it's it's great it's really because I was wondering about that because I, I, I was looking at the t's and the e's and thinking ah, ah, you know <laughs> then it's like so it's not hand rendered but it, it looks totally hand rendered thank you thank you yeah. yeah it was um a very useful website where you can load your handwriting into something and I think oh, I think one of my tutors told me that varying the there's a word for it that a graphic designer would know, but like that varying the letters that yeah. they would randomly uh, vary them or whatever, like the same yeah. A would be different or whatever, makes it more convincing. And that helps a lot. So <laughs> I can't remember who told me that, but whoever yeah. they were, thanks. And it went through a couple of versions as well because initially it looked really beautiful but wasn't as legible. So right. that had yeah, yeah, that was easy. kind of uh, amended a little bit as well. So there's a huge amount of work went into this, you know, but but I think, you know, we were bringing very, very different skills, you know, I mean, mm. even the way that Megan, you talk about like, you know, the saturation of colours or how to get colour palette and all that kind of stuff was something that I wasn't bringing to the table, you know, and so I think, you know, that just worked really well. And, and did you make a, a defined effort to have recognisable characters from the periods in it, like try and have as many people in it as possible, or maybe not, or to have them as more abstracted representations of representing people? Uh, how did that work? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it was, was deliberate, like Arthur Leahy appears in it once yeah. or twice, you know, and... Um, 
and and you know there's there's some quite realistic things around my parents in it but other ones I think were more generic you know kind of like kind of not necessarily specific people but a representation of of the kind of people who would have been there at the time and then some things are based on real life stuff like you know Megan has has reproduced a, a very accurately a postcard that my mother wrote to me you know and that was based on I still have that postcard so you know mm-hmm. there's some things like that that are very realistic representations and others that are interpretations based on reality is the infrastructure there still I mean was that an issue as well like okay there's lots and lots of visual source material but have a lot of places gone or were the things that you had to recreate purely from photographs or things that simply you couldn't recreate and it wasn't a possibility when you were coming to do this or was there any things like that where history's moved on or the one when I really remember it was I could not find any sort of visual reference for what the old Eastons and Cork looked like oh yeah and I went to do you remember I went to Mented like I was just convinced I was going to find a photo of it somewhere and I just did not I just really couldn't find it anywhere at all and it didn't really matter that much but yeah I still think that drawing doesn't look as, as good as the other ones because it's not as I think that we were a bit tactical about that though or like because I think there's stuff referenced that we didn't have visual reference for me and that couldn't be described very easily that you wouldn't like it would be in the text, but wouldn't be drawn. I think a lot of the time, but most things there was, you you dug up so much reference for me, like it was incredible. And yeah, the RT archives were, and Google Street View were my best friends. So I just, yeah, there's yeah, a lot out there. And I think, you know, we we drew so much, obviously we had the the archive resource. So, you know, that was, that was a huge resource. Yeah. Um, but also, I think we drew in some information from other people. And um, Megan, uh, we we found out is is friends with the children of some of the activists of of my generation, <laughs> and so they they got roped in as well, like you know, to kind of produce you know copies of Disarm or Veronica Kelly, um, wow. who's kind of in, engaged with the whole kind of Commiso story and that yeah. he's got there. You know, sent Megan loads of of information and and press clippings and and photographs and things like that so you know we drew in resources from other people and I think you had your mother trying to find a photograph of Eason's you know I think you know know, I think your family got roped in to try and find things as well so you know we were trying to draw in as much as we could because I was trying to give kind of visual prompts to to Megan because I'm describing stuff an awful lot of the time that we don't understand or you haven't lived through or whatever, but trying to actually make it understandable and readable to to Megan and to uh, and to younger activists. So yeah. you know, it, it, it was fun at times. It was fun. It was fun. You know, um, yeah. I mean, there was there was a whole section that that I think got cut out in the end, which was around kind of you know period products at the time. You know, so really? trying to find kind of imagery of that was really really challenging you know so I think you did find it which was cool yeah I, I found some bits and I think I was drawing really really bad yeah. versions of things you know but that's one section that kind of did get cut out, out of this you know yeah. that's, that's the reality is that we couldn't put everything in but you know I thought that was a really interesting one to try and kind of find because it's not something you would have had photographs of because oh, it wouldn't be mentioned talk about it I was wondering is if you in an ideal world if you if there was one thing you could put back in then 
either because you didn't have the imagery or you ended up cutting it for for uh, length and so on um i think i think you know the 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 imagery around kind of period products in the kind of like you know late 1970s i think that was an interesting one and there was also one that um we cut out which was around um contraception and kind of you know it, it, at a, at a time of lack of ease to it and i think there was a there was a, a description around um diaphragms i think at one stage oh, you know so so i think those ones and then there was you know stories about um you know some of, of some of the people who are really important in my life you know like my aunt nelly who was like you know real character and you know italian ancestry like so you know like my you know the, um you know so there's people like that but uh, you know like i said that the, there's so much in it mm-hmm. um that like we had to kind of think about mm-hmm. what what can we do and how can we tell a kind of semi-coherent story here as mm-hmm. well you know so um you know we couldn't include everything yeah yeah, yeah. Maybe that'll be volume two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I doubt if Megan would ever work for another one. You know what I mean? So that I just need to give my hands a break. Then I'm, I'm back. <laughs> and li- likewise, Megan, was there anything that you then felt that in an ideal world you'd, you'd put back in that, she, that you didn't get to include? Or... Oh, see, I I didn't have to cut any imagery because I, I was just trying to get all the imagery done which was like i mean mm-hmm. nice for me i, I every, yeah the the contraception and the, the period stuff was extremely interesting you had a story about um uh tricking your your school into giving you a higher maths class or just a maths class i can't remember higher maths class yes that's that true. was very good and felt that. very I yeah. That. <laughs> yeah yeah I forgot about that yeah that we cut that yeah I wanted to do honours maths and I was in an all-girls school and they weren't running honours maths so um we they said oh. that they would run an honours maths class if enough people signed up for it but there was only three of us actually wanted to do it so mm-hmm. we convinced our classmates or enough of our classmates to say they wanted to do it they signed up for the class the class was set up and then they all dropped out so the three of us got <laughs> That's good. Genius. That's <laughs> so, yeah. activism. Yeah, yeah. It was like you know, essential. And we were going, look, you know, all you have to do is sign up for it and stay in the class for a couple of weeks till it's established as a teacher signed, and then you can all drop out. Just don't bother. And they did, which was the other side of it, you know. But like, you know, the the other bit of it was that you know, the work had to be done within yeah. kind of, you know, it, it was already and I think it was the bones of two years of work on it you know between kind of the planning and the actual work on it and then trying to figure out how to get it out into the world do you know so you know at some point it has to become a finished product as well you know and I think the other thing for me um, about it is that we decided very early on that we weren't going to discuss this with other people that we were actually um, going to give ourselves the the creative space to work out how we were going to do this together without any outside influences, you know. So normally I'll talk about, you know, work in progress or things and planning or whatever. So our immediate, our partners and our immediate families knew that we were working on this, but we didn't talk about it outside of that. And and that, I think, was really important. I think it created that kind of bubble for us to be able to work it out together. 
how we were going to uh, evolve the work and how we were going to collaborate. And I think that that strengthened, you know, that really positive working relationship between us. I don't know what you think, Megan. No, I agree. I think it, it was really nice as well because we were both pretty certain that it was going to be a real book and it wasn't just going to be a passion project that we worked on for a year and a half and then left mm. aside. And I think that it was so like safe because it was just like closed off in that way it meant that we could really believe that that was going to happen. And I think it made the time pressure real as well because I was like, oh, I have to get this done because this is a real book and I like, need to do this before here and this needs to happen before then. And yeah, that was, that, I think that was very good. I think it was a great idea and you're right to do that. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, you know, especially when it came clear the amount of work that was going to be involved in this, I remember kind of saying to Megan, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I promise you that this is going to be published and this will be out in the world. Do you yeah. Know? So. yeah. Was was it difficult getting published or has that been straightforward? Um, yeah. A bit challenging in, in some ways because, you know, it's a very specific mm. uh, kind of book and it's also, you know, expensive to produce because it's mm. a... 150 page full color production and you know so we explored a a number of avenues and um and I have a really really good relationship with with um Cork City Library you know we've done a a lot of work there Mm. in terms of of events and exhibitions and film screenings um and I hadn't realized that they actually published books as well (laughs) and and uh I had an early morning conversation with Conal Creedon um, at one stage uh, talking about kind of like, you know, various publishing options and we had this really elaborate kind of detailed conversation going on. And after a while, he said, you know, I'm sorry, but I kind of need to go now. (laughs) And what I hadn't realized is he was actually getting married that day. (laughs) But he still got engaged in this kind of big conversation with me about kind of books and publishing. And he had suggested to the, the city library. So when I got in touch with Patricia Looney, she was instantly, you know, enthusiastic about the book and yeah. really wanted to publish it. Yeah. Um, but there was a little bit of a, a delay as she was trying to figure out how to kind of, you know, uh, get the funding line t- to do it, to make it happen. Mm-hmm. But she always wanted to do it and was really, really excited about kind of making it happen, you know. So that was that was lovely to have that positive um enthusiastic reception for it. Yeah. That's a great way to get a poll. That's fantastic. Really is. And I suppose I love the thing around the library around it's like it's so democratic. It's so yeah. accessible that, you know, it's the opposite of those like really expensive, impenetrable, like kind of academic tomes that mm. like five people can afford to buy. Mm. Yeah. You know, that it's very much around trying to make this accessible and 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 they always uh, their approach their work is is that like of you know they talk about themselves as a democratic institution that anybody can come into you know so it was lovely to have the the first launch there do you have any intention of bringing this further on any levels i mean have you thought about uh well i mean would this be something maybe that you could have the basis of talking about it and and discussions and going out and meeting people or activists or who, who want to be active has that thought struck you, like using it as a pedagogical tool as well as, you know, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we're, it's very early days. It's only just come out. So I suppose we're still at that stage of trying to um, get a, a publicity around it, yeah. trying to get distribution as well, because again, unless you're one of the kind of mainstream 
publishers, you know, you, you know, there's a very locked down system around our, our, our kind of distribution and, and book selling. So kind of doing a, a lot of work there around trying to actually get it out and distribute it and um, creating a website so that it's for sale on our website. Um, Good website, though. Uh, yeah, those designed by my teenager. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Di- yeah. Diaryofanactivist.com. Diaryofanactivist.com. So you can order the book online. Um, but it, and, and also, you know, we're, we're hoping kind of, you know, that it becomes the hot Christmas present, you know, of 2022 yeah. for people. <laughs> um, but one of the ideas that we have talked about is um, possibly trying to create an art exhibition. Um, and you, taking some of the images from the book and trying to create an art exhibition um, around it. And um, I have That's loads cool. of ideas for follow-up versions of the book, but I'm not talking to Megan about them yet. It's <laughs> 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 scary. Um, but yeah, they, they, and, and I think, you know, a lot of people have, have been saying it's been inspiring about um, ideas for them around how they want to present work that they've been doing, you know. So, yeah. Um, I think I have to to sign an an exclusivity contract with Megan. (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't. I know loads of illustrators who just graduated and they need jobs. (laughs) No, 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 no. no. We work together. (laughs) I don't want anybody else. (laughs) But I mean, to me, I mean, just you know, I think you know. The Irish Left Archive is fascinated by activism. This is a form of activism and it's a form of self-reflective activism. And it's I, more power. The more of this, the better. It's fabulous. It's great to see this sort of collaboration taking place and and uh, and people reflecting yeah, about like what it is to be an activist and what that means. And then putting it into a format that other people will hopefully be totally inspired by. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I suppose for me, it kind of links with that work, you know, that I do around trying to animate the archive. Yeah. You know, trying to kind of bring the history in multiple ways that are accessible to people. But this is a much more personal kind of project. This isn't directly a Cork LGBT archive project. This is much more a personal and much more exposing kind of uh, mm. project. But I just felt that having having a, a story to hook the activism onto kind of just makes it a little bit more accessible. You know, neither of us could have done this without the other. Yeah. You know, and and I do think, you know, there's there's a huge amount of mutual respect uh between us, you know, in terms of what we both brought to the project and making it happen. I just feel very lucky that I got to work on this. Like I yeah, I just really can't stress that enough. Like I, I would love to work with you again, but like just working on this was incredible. Like, yeah, as you say, like I never have made this on my own. I don't have that experience. I don't like this is an incredible story and really improving to work on. Thank you both for your generosity and coming and talking about this because it's really appreciated. And and again, it's fabulous to see people working and collaborating to get this this sort of material developed and out there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.